This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. As we reflect on last year, besides the overwhelming impact that COVID has had and continues to have, the other issue that really impacted our entire country and dominated our news feeds was the eruption of civil unrest prompted by the George Floyd protests originally. Well, many people have described it as a very unique moment right now in American history and, and continues when the issues of racial injustice and social equity were brought to the forefront of everyone's attention. And though these issues have been present in America for years now, it seems like 2020 was the year where we as an entire country started having these urgent conversations and discussions about racial injustice and inequality like never before. Well, my guest today will explore how these issues of racial equity and social justice have impacted her city, which happens to be New Orleans, and what her nonprofit is doing about it. My guest today is Ursula Price. She is the executive director of the New Orleans Center for Racial Justice. Ursula is an accomplished criminal justice reform champion with deep roots in community organizing. Born and raised in rural Mississippi, Ursula has been organizing for criminal justice reform in New Orleans since 2001. Enjoy today's show. Well, Ursula, so glad to have you on the show. Give us some background on the New Orleans Workers' Center for Racial Justice. What brought you to the role as executive director? And I understand that your organization started in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, which I'm guessing a lot of my listeners remember Hurricane Katrina. So talk a little bit about how you got involved. Yes, the Workers' Center was founded in a moment where due to Katrina, we saw workers being devalued and exploited and put in dangerous situations. And we also saw specifically black and brown workers being pitted against one another to drive down conditions. And so in that moment, it was calculated that that division could be turned into power by uniting those workers who were being told that they were competing with one another. Um, the Worker Center was actually an outgrowth of the People's Hurricane Relief Fund, or at least I should say the idea was sparked in that space. And ironically, at the same time, an organization that I was part of called Safe Street Strong Communities also came out of that space. Uh, so I have been uh, companions with the Worker Center my entire career. Uh, my work with Safe Street Strong Communities led to the creation of an independent here in New Orleans. And for about 10 years, I was with the police monitor uh, doing that inside reform strategy. And one of the major lessons from that work was that the insider strategy really only functions well when you have strong organizations pushing for accountability from the outside. And so I started looking for an opportunity to go back into organizing to be part of that accountability uh, when the worker center started looking for a director. That's what led me to join them, and it has been an amazing process because the Worker Center is one of the few post-Katrina organizations in our city that has survived in the long haul. 
so it is a real community anchor and it's it's been such a blessing to work with an organization that is so critical to not just the New Orleans area but our entire state. Um, well, way to go. And I, it sounds like you've had a lot of experience already. And this was like you were there at the right time and you were the right person for this job. You know, it's interesting. I think, you know, through last year in 2020, there was definitely, I think many people called it a moment, right? When it came to, I think, the awareness that not that there's not been a struggle for racial injustice and social inequity for a long time, but something about last year, it seemed like it brought the attention on these issues to the fore of everybody. And I think because of the reaction with all the protests and uh, a lot of conversations that people had and people went into, you know, town halls and there was things on TV and things on Zoom calls. And my guess is a lot of my listeners have been on multiple Zoom calls since uh, talking about this issue of racial inequity and racial justice. It's front and center on everybody's minds. So talk about racial justice and racial equality and what it means to you and what it means to those you serve. You are absolutely right that we're in a moment where it is on the forefront of people's minds. In fact, a funny story, my family has Santa Claus give gag gifts every Christmas. And uh, this year, my gag gift was a button that said, I told y'all so, <laughs> because I have been harping on issues of racial <laughs> disparity. <so> <laughs> My fairly, you know, bourgeois family finally conceded, okay, you might have a point. <laughs> so that's, that's a big move That's so me. great. <laughs> uh, but, you know, for the Workers' Center, we have always been focused on issues of systemic racism and racial disparity. And so we are doing an in-depth study uh, surveying essential workers, and we want to use the results of that work uh, to change local policy about conditions of labor and how we handle these kind of crises for workers. And those small, wonky policy pieces are all about, like, conditions shifting. And that, you know, everyone keeps talking about uh, there is no normal. We don't want to go back to normal. We want to transform. Well, we see this as our moment to do that transformation by not just pushing for others to act, but by directly engaging in governance ourselves. And so one of our major agendas is to make sure that workers are at the the economic development and uh, public health table because they are the front line and they know exactly what the conditions are and what the risks are to workers. And at the same time, you know, racial justice is also about self-transformation and self-interrogation. It has also been much talked about that, you know, colorism and anti-blackness are a big part of communities of color. You know, especially the Latin American community has been just having that discussion very vibrantly these days. And so we also do the work of challenging ourselves, of interrogating our internalized racism, of talking about uh, how anti-blackness lives in our policies and structures and behaviors. And so that three-pronged approach is sort of the core of how the worker center functions. And and I would add a fourth prong to that, which is that we try to shift narrative, right, uh, by lifting up the voices of workers and talking about their experiences and what they know to be true. We are changing the conversation about how economies are built and sustained in Louisiana. 
Well, it's fascinating you say that. I mean, it sounds like there was several aspects, right? There, You've got the personal aspect, you have the societal, you have the systemic aspect to it. Very interesting you mentioned all of those. You know, one of the things I was going to share too was I ran across an article by Kyle Westaway. He does something called the Weekend Briefing. And he mentioned that because of COVID, the income inequality gap is rising exponentially. It's like COVID put jet fuel, I think is the term he used, between the rich and the poor. In other words, that gap is rising dramatically now because in other words, people that are in the higher income levels, they actually are making money during this, uh, during COVID. Like they're doing fine. The stock market's doing fine. But those are like under $16 an hour and under are actually, those jobs are going away. And so again, it's that classic thing. The rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. And so what you're doing is so important so now let, let's talk a little bit about your organization. I understand you mentioned ahead of time uh, before this interview, um, you're on the smaller end in terms of your organization, but you have a huge influence and you would do a lot of good work. And I, I share this more for my listeners, you know, of all the nonprofits in this country, I've ran a stat that 66% of all nonprofits have a budget that is under a million dollars. And I understand your nonprofits in your, would be included in this under 66% of small nonprofits. So talk about, you know, I think for my listeners that there's a lot of people that list my show that have smaller nonprofits. And sometimes we talk about some of these issues and I'll bring speakers in and leaders in that are part of really large organizations. Their budgets are 500 million or, you know, or 20 million. And they're like, well, I can't relate. I have a really small nonprofit, you know, comparatively uh, it's I'm, I'm under a million dollars. So maybe you could talk from a small nonprofits perspective, what are the struggles you're facing? And in particular, probably during this pandemic, how has COVID impacted your small nonprofit and what are the maybe unique things that you are challenged with now that you could really share? Here's what we're doing in our neck of the woods here in New Orleans. Here's what we're doing to combat that. Here's how we're getting more support. Here's how we're increasing our fundraising. Maybe you can speak from, again, your perspective, leading an organization that's under a million dollars. Yeah, that's a very good and timely question because, you know, we know that economic downturn is happening and that, the, you know, the philanthropy dollars are just not going to be what they used to be. And and it was always a struggle for uh, an organization as small as us to maintain our budget anyway. I will say one advantage the Worker Center has is because we organize two different communities, we are able to get, you know, a kind of diverse pot of foundation funding. We can get criminal justice funding, immigration funding, workers' rights funding. And so that is helpful. And to the credit of foundations, they have made a deliberate investment in opening up new pots of funding to organizations like us in the moment of COVID, because I think they recognize that those of us who are on the ground and most directly in touch with impacted people have a greater ability to to assess need and to help um, meet those needs. But that is not going to be sustainable. We know those dollars may run out. I remember the moment after Katrina where there was a huge influx of foundation money in Louisiana for the first five years after Katrina, and then it all disappeared. And, and you saw huge numbers of organizations closing their doors. So we are preparing ourselves for the future. A, a couple of strategies we're using, is, first of all, we've, we've shifted our way of budgeting. And so we do a whole lot more contingency budgeting now uh, to the point that we uh, have projections about, okay, if this uh, amount of money is not attainable in the next fiscal year. These are the adjustments we're going to make. And that has been 
It has been difficult, right, because that contingency planning requires you to do a lot of research to estimate what might happen. Uh, but it's also been, like, very comforting to our community to know that we do have a plan to anticipate some of this. We're also looking at, like, investing more in our relationships with donors as a more sustainable method of uh, maintaining our organization. Uh, traditionally, the Worker Center has never had more than like 3% of its funding coming from donors. Uh, we are actively working to grow that number, and we want that relationship to be a true partnership. We see our donors as uh, community ambassadors and influencers. And so we're focusing our attention on building local relationships with local donors who will be impacted by our work. That is both small-level grassroots fundraising in the impacted community and uh, donor outreach in uh, the business community in our local area, and also, like, you know, more uh, in-kind partnerships with other organizations. We each have strengths, and we can each have meet one another's needs while reducing our costs. So those are some of the things that we're strategizing around right now to maintain funding. But, of course, there, there are a whole host of other challenges. I'll be honest with you, right now, mutual aid has been both a blessing and a curse for a lot of organizations. We're organizers. We, we organize people for power. Providing services and distributing aid is not something we're that experienced in. And we've, we've had a steep learning curve in figuring out how to do that equitably with principle and in a way that, like, strengthens our organizing. Uh, and as grateful as we are for the opportunity to help meet our community's needs, we're, we're reflecting a lot about, you know, nonprofits kind of filling in for governmental functions and what we want to do to shift responsibility back to the government instead of taking on burdens uh, that we are much, much less resourced to hold. So part of the work that we want to do with our essential worker survey is to set our local government up to be able to uh, more directly meet community needs at the next time one of these crises come around because, you know, they have $640 billion and, and we have like $1.2 million. We think they have the, the resources to reach more people and we can help them figure out how to reach those people. Well, it sounds like in light of the challenges you're facing, you're seeking to diversify your funding sources, especially focusing on local donors as well as in-kind partnerships. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we do believe that like donors are going to be our long-term sustainability. We would love to eventually become an organization that is 100% funded by dues and donors um, so that we don't have to you know, rely on the shifting foundation landscape. I think that's an ambition a lot of organizations share. And we're, we're ramping our way up to that, but it, we believe that it's definitely worth the investment and that ultimately it will make our organization more sustainable and connected to this community. Oh, well said. Well, tell us about some of your current campaigns. I know when I was doing a bit of research on what you do, I heard a little bit about, for example, the NOLA shakedown, where you're teaching citizens how to navigate municipal fines and fees. It sounded really interesting and, and very empowering for those you're helping. Tell us more about this, like, and maybe other campaigns that you're doing. Uh, what do they look like? How do you go about doing those? And how do you choose which campaigns to do? Yes. Um, the shakedown campaign is a very exciting campaign. It's actually 
an outgrowth of some work we started five years ago. Uh, back then, our airport was building a new terminal. We had won a local hire ordinance for public works projects, but we found that the, the bidding process wasn't really uh, requiring much of contractors uh, to hire local workers. Through our efforts, we were able to make sure that that shifted and that more work was available to local people. And after that, we found that many of the people that we referred to those, excuse me, to those jobs could not get them because they had um, small warrants due to debts to the city of New Orleans for municipal fines and fees. And these are things for, for like, you know, a municipal violation would be like, let's say, spitting on the sidewalk or uh, public trespass, petty offenses that usually don't come with jail time, but come with fines. And those fines are supposed to consider a person's ability to pay when they are assessed. But it has already been found uh, by others who studied our system that that assessment isn't taking place and that most people are being uh, levied fines that they can't possibly afford to pay. And that we found was impacting their ability to get good work because criminal background checks would prevent them from being able to get that work. We also saw a lot of people had their driver's licenses suspended for non-payment of these fines, and that was affecting their ability to work for certain companies as well. And so back in 2017, we held our first fines and fees warrant clinic. It was planned very quickly. We had a partnership with the municipal court judge we did one announcement on the news saying that we were going to be doing this, and the next day, uh, like 5,000 people showed up at our door. Uh, oh, my goodness. First, so the word got out quick. <laughs> wow. Very quickly, and we were overwhelmed. We were able to clear about 2,500 people's warrants that day, and over the next year, individually worked with people to clear additional warrants. So through that first round, we cleared somewhere around half a million dollars in warrants, which benefited the city because they were not ever collecting those fines and fees, right? So through our process, people were able to settle for a payment that they could actually make. And so the city uh, had record-breaking collections on their fines and fees. And also those workers got to have their lives cleared up. And keep in mind, this is not just about debt, but this is about like the, the emotional stress of knowing that if you ever have a police encounter, you might end up in jail because there's a warrant out for your arrest for not paying those fines and fees. Uh, so it was a really transformational moment. And since that moment, we've been working on a way to, to do that for everyone. Uh, before COVID, there were 47,000 people who had warrants for outstanding fines and fees. And since COVID, because our police department has rightfully chosen to do more citations than arrests, that number has almost doubled. And so we began working with the city council and built the political will that everyone acknowledged that this was an untenable situation, that it was not good for our economy or our justice system. We'll be right back. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. 
If this is your first time listening to us, I wanted to make sure you're aware of a whole group of other episodes with fascinating guests that I previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. There you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country, including some from other countries, all trying to make their world better. So when you go to our website, you can also subscribe to my monthly leadership update in order to get more content, ask me questions, and discover additional information. Just look for the subscribe button on the right-hand side of the webpage. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. Sounds like this help has been really good where you have provided advocacy for your clients, but your work has actually helped change legislation. So it seems like you're really having long-term impact, not just for the individuals you're serving again, but how the laws are now applied in your community. It's very exciting. And I got to say, we have done this with a large coalition of organizations and governmental actors. I think the greatest victory that we can claim was building the consensus that our city wants us to change. And because of that, a large number of people and organizations have really earnestly put their energy behind this. And we've been able to already change a lot. But I, I predict by the end of this year, we will see uh, a whole new set of conditions for workers in, in New Orleans because we were able to get this debt off their back and hopefully stop new debts from coming. Well, I mean, such a really important work. And I was going to highlight that, that you are dedicated to serve immigrant families as well as the low-income community as a whole. What are some, I mean, you've already mentioned this obviously with your campaigns, but has there been anything because of COVID-19 that you've maybe shifted your strategy or changed your priorities in light of what you do because of COVID? Oh, many things. Speaking of the immigrant community, uh, we work with a community of uh, seafood processors in rural Louisiana, most of whom are here on H-2B visas from Mexico. And uh, you may have read in the news about COVID outbreaks in meat processing plants. Uh, well, we've had similar problems in our seafood processing plants. I mean, the conditions for this work have always been horrible. Uh, they're packed into housing, sometimes a dozen people in a two or three bedroom trailer. They're also packed into their workspace. They work extremely long hours in very close quarters with no protective equipment. And, of course, we started seeing record high numbers of COVID uh, infections in that work. And, of course, these workers' status in this country is tied to their ability to work. So with that came all kinds of threats and fear are related to reporting conditions or even taking time off to go get treatment. And so we definitely had to shift more resources towards that community. And uh, recently we actually, um, we have filed complaints with both the Department of Labor around wage theft, with OSHA around workplace safety and conditions, and with the FBI around human trafficking, all related to our support work with this community during COVID. At the same time, the immigrant community here in New Orleans has its own challenges, right? And so we've definitely been dealing with the gap and mutual aid for this very substantial part of our community. At the same time, though, we have been in partnership with us or others pushing for some relief uh, for these people. You know, the fear of ICE and deportation uh, is, is real all the time, but it's especially 
poignant in the moment of crisis. And so, for instance, we've always done the work every time there is a hurricane and a mandatory evacuation, uh, we've been able to convince ICE to put a moratorium on immigration enforcement so that people can safely evacuate. Well, we've also done that work during COVID uh, because there have been uh, huge numbers of COVID infections and immigration detention. And we've made the case that putting more people in detention is of public safety risk to this entire community and that this is not the time. And we've been able to make that argument with the support of the medical community, the former director of the Department of Homeland Security, former Department of Labor officials, and uh, have periodically gotten moratoriums so that immigrants can, like, look after their safety first. And that work continues. You know, now that the Biden administration has announced a moratorium, there's a lot of confusion in our community about what that means. And so we're doing a lot of outreach and education because, frankly, fear is not just a difficult state of being. It can kill. It can make people unwilling to report crime. Uh, That's something we've worked with our police department around a great deal. And that's why the city of New Orleans now has a welcoming city policy, uh, because we realize that folks who are part of our community want to support our community, and we need to remove all these barriers to their full participation. So that has been a big part of our work during COVID-19. And the list goes on and on, right? Um, We're we're also supporting uh, national work around the Biden transition team to kind of reverse some of the abusive policies created by the Trump administration. And every day we do one-on-one problem solving, right? Uh, we, we devote a, a significant portion of our time to talking with our members about how they meet their own needs because we believe that leadership development is our, our core purpose. But also we know that we need our community members to be able to not only defend themselves, but lead. And so we make that investment, especially during these times when people have so many issues to take leadership around. You know, it seems like one of the many things you're doing well is you're really having an impact with legislation again, government leaders, both on a local scale, regional, and even a national scale. For my listeners who have maybe like-minded organizations like your own, and maybe they're trying to figure out, okay, how do I do that? How do I become an advocate to the point where now we're making impact when it comes to legislation? We're actually having maybe a little bit of a national impact in terms of the overall way the federal government or the state government looks at the people that we serve. How have you gone about that? Like, how have you built credibility? How have you been able to expand your work so that it has such a wide-reaching impact? Ah, that's an excellent question. I mean, first of all, the Worker Center has been in New Orleans for 16, 17 years. And so I'm I'm not going to lie, it took time to build the power and influence to move local legislation. But over time, because of a consistent organizing and consistent investment and, and consistent relationships with governmental actors, we have a number of champions inside the city government, and we have the ability to influence local policy. On the national scale, however, that has been about us making an equal investment in our relationships and partnerships with unions and other organizations. And so that is how a small organization with 500 members 
can draft national legislation is through our partnership with immigration organizations, workers' rights organizations, who can take our on-the-ground experiences and the, the learning that we have gathered and put together and use it to shape and move policy. And so, for instance, we're very excited that something we helped draft almost 10 years ago around immigration reform is likely to be debated by Congress this year because we've maintained that partnership over a decade. And so those investments in our relationships with national partners, but also in collecting our own history. Quite frankly, our biggest asset in moving that national policy has been how much knowledge we have about conditions on the ground. And we're able to utilize that knowledge by making sure that we collect people's stories, that we're constantly recording events, and we're constantly assessing uh, conditions with our membership so that we are often the people in the conversation who have the most relevant information about the reality of those conditions. And, and that has been what made us valuable to our national partners and helped us to be able to move things on the local, state, and national level. And we hope soon to be able to even do cross-border work uh, because we are learning much more about through our work with H2B visa workers about the relationships between the U.S. government, the Mexican government, and corporations. So it sounds like because you're so tuned in and you know really sensitive to the issues of the people that you're serving, and you've you've really obviously built trust with them, where they share their story with you, you really do have that firsthand. This is what's going on at the ground roots level here in terms of uh, immigrants, people in the low income community. So it sounds like that's really giving you the information, and then of course that leads to credibility that then eventually has a national impact. Exactly. And to be clear, it's not just anecdotal. We, we've had to develop a data collection and analysis process. And it's not, a, you know, it's not sexy, uh, but the results uh, have been so much, uh, so have given us so much return on our investment. Uh, and so, like, that data collection and recording our own stories is a regular part of our practice. And it is, like I, I said, one of our greatest strengths. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, Ursula, for my listeners, if they want to find out more about you, uh, more about your work, where would you send them online? Well, first of all, check out our website, nowcrj.org, New Orleans Worker Center for Racial Justice.org. We're also very active on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And the, our social media is very exciting because our members are a great part of that content. So you will see videos and stories and, and really vibrant uh, discussions in our online community about the issues of today. And uh, just a shout out, we are always looking for new partners and volunteers and members. We pride ourselves on taking advantage of whatever people have to offer. There's a place for everyone with the Worker Center. So we, we welcome you to join us. During COVID, we're not able to gather in person, but we still gather on a regular basis. And uh, there's so much work to do 
So if you want to make a material impact on the world, you can ride with us and rest assured that you're doing something that is changing things for people. Well, Ursula, thanks so much for your passion. Thanks for your leadership. And thanks for your commitment to particularly to serve those who really don't have a voice. You're giving them a voice. And thank you for being on the show, taking time to tell us a little bit more about what you do there. And I encourage my listeners to check out our organization. From what I've seen, you really are making a difference. And it's amazing how, in many ways, as we said earlier, you, uh, on a scale, you know, you're a smaller nonprofit budget-wise, but your impact far outweighs, you know, your budget size. So way to go. You've done a good job to expand your impact around the country. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Hey friends, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on both iTunes and Spotify. If you're wondering how to find it, just type in the words Nonprofit Leadership Podcast and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast and your feedback will help expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as possible. You can also find other resources and interviews of past guests on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Again, that website is non nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better.